listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm having a heck of a time, Wade, coming up with the right analogy for the episode that's ahead of us. I can't decide whether to liken it to a marathon or to a boxing match. Well, Kevin, it's it's really funny that you mentioned marathon because, uh, you know, last month I actually ran a marathon. Oh, oh, oh you did? Really? <laughs> yeah, did, did I not tell you? You, you might have mentioned it once or twice. <laughs> Listeners, I hope you have your electrolyte salt tablets ready because this is going to be a long one and some of us might break a sweat. Yeah, we're definitely going to be breaking a sweat here in the podcasting booth as we count down our top 10 films of the entire last decade. What? It's crazy, but you know what, Wade? I have a feeling that I'm going to be able to go the distance. Yeah, we're really hoping that. My only question, though, is, Kevin, there's like over 20 MCU films. How do I put them into 10 slots? You're just going to have to make some hard cuts, Wade. Listeners, we've got our best films of the decade coming up on this episode, episode 237 of Seeing and Believing. on Seeing and Believing, and Kevin, I've got a bone to pick with you, so I'm a, I'm a little frustrated because I didn't hear anything from you yesterday, and yesterday was our five-year anniversary of Seeing and Believing. Not a peep, nothing, no congratulations, <laughs> no card, no singing well, gram, or whatever those things are. <laughs> Wade, in, in my defense, yesterday was President's Day, and as we all know, <sighs> You know, America loves its President's Day. You know, you have that crazy three-day weekend where you have President's Day parties. You have, you know, cookouts in the middle of February. It's I was I was just busy having too much President-themed fun. Okay, and you were probably stuck in that Herbert Hoover biography again and just forgot. I I forgive you. (laughs) Time time just flies by when you're reading about old old Hoover. (laughs) Old Hoove. So listeners, uh, it's funny that this is our fifth year anniversary of Seeing and Believing because we have a huge show planned for you. We're going to be talking about our favorite films of the decade. And, you know, we've said best films of the decade. Maybe favorite is a better way to describe it because there are so many good films, Kevin. And at one point, as I was putting together my list, I I thought to myself, why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we putting ourselves through the ringer in this way? Because it was so difficult to narrow it down to 10. And I don't know how I did it, but I finished my list 15 minutes ago. So that's all that counts. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was really hard for sure. You know, normally I actually have fun with our our top 10 list, like our best of the year list. I always really look forward to that episode. Yeah, of course. I enjoy keeping the running the running list and kind of tout, messing with the uh, the exact rankings a little bit. I find that enjoyable. This is the first time I've actually put together a a full best of the decade list, like looking back at the last 10 years of movies and really making a serious go at ranking them all and trying to come up with the top 10. And it wasn't, frankly, Wade, it wasn't fun at all. (laughs) 
It was too hard. <laughs> I, I would like to return to the easy lists, please. I know. Hey, you know, and when I'm making the top 10 list, it's always like, oh man, this is so difficult. You know, what number 10, 11 film am I going to leave off? And now it's like, well, which Martin Scorsese masterpiece am I not going to talk about in this episode? It's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's wild. And I really did finish my list right before this podcast. And yeah, it just kind of, uh, kind of wild. I, I do want to remind listeners that on episode 16 and 17, all of those episodes ago, it is a little less than five years ago, we talked with Nick Olson about our top 10 of the decade so far. So I kind of had this working list and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'll take that list and then I will grab my favorite, maybe my number one and number two films from the last five years and pull those off my list. And I should, I should figure something out pretty easily, but it didn't work that way at all. And as I was thinking through this process, I was I was wondering, what is Kevin doing? What how how, <laughs> how did you do this list? Because we really haven't talked too much about this because we've been worried about the list ourselves. Uh, how did you put yours together? Uh, f- frankly, uh, I, I kind of started in the same place as you did. I looked back at that that previous list. It's like, okay, so I've got the first five years of the decade down pat. It should be a relatively simple matter to just look at my favorite films of the ensuing five years and, you know, cherry pick the best ones from there and just kind of find a way to work them in. You know, maybe a few favorites from the previous list will drop off, but that's to be expected. It's fine. And that's really not how it worked out at all. Five years is a really long time. And in that time, I've also gone back and seen a lot of movies from those first five years of the decade and trying to figure out where those fit. And it was, it became chaos really quickly. So what I ended up doing in order to make the the hard choices in order to narrow it down to a top 10 list is I, I kind of introduced a different sort of criterion. Normally when I make these, these year-end best lists, I kind of just, well, think of what movie moved me the most? You know, what movies did I have the strongest reaction to? Which ones were especially impressive? That didn't really work with a decade best list where there everything is just so incredible and I was moved by so many films. That wasn't a good enough criterion. So instead, I kind of, to break some ties, I looked back at the movies that not only did I find really special personally, but the ones that to me really encapsulated something about the mood of the past decade or really addressed an issue that came to be really important or really defining about the 2010s. And that's kind of how I, I broke some ties and finally landed on, you know, the, the last three spots, especially like 10 through eight. I'm just, I just kind of managed to settle on something so that even though I feel really bad about the movies that were you know, just missing the cut. At least I had a criterion in place that let me feel less like I was excluding them and more just zeroing in on what felt particularly 2010s-y about uh, these these uh, films. That's a really cool way to do it because it is hard to see a film sitting at number 11 and number 12, a great film sitting there and saying, well, it's going to be off my list. But then when you think about it, it's like, I, I mean... 
it's the 11th best film of the decade, in my opinion, the 12th best film of the decade. And so you, ha- you do have to keep that in perspective. Now, Kevin, I mentioned something in our top 10 of 2019 podcast last month, and I'm going to mention it again. It's the Wade Triangle, right? I Patent pending, the Wade Triangle. Uh, one right. is uh, the form of the film. Uh, how well is it made? And the thematic qualities. Uh, the, the second leg of that triangle, I guess, uh, the second side of that triangle, or the point of the triangle, is uh, the, the personal connection to me. And what does it do to me emotionally? And then the third is, is kind of simple. It's just rewatchability. What do I want to watch over and over again? And with so many good films, I found myself leaning on those, those bottom two points, really, uh, the emotional connection. And when I talk about some of these films, I'm going to lean more into that and say, hey, here's what the film means to me in many respects, because I've talked about some of these films a a good deal over the course of the podcast. And then rewatchability. And I don't buy movies very often. I go to the library a lot, a lot. People know me there. But I found that most of the films on my list, I own a copy of those movies. They're here. They're they're on my bookshelf. And the others I've checked out from the library multiple times. And so that definitely is, you know, leans into the rewatchability. So that's kind of my criteria. We should probably stop going on and on about it um, and just <laughs> explain how we picked them by telling the listeners what we picked. So number 10, uh, your favorite film of the decade uh, what is it, Kevin? Okay, so my number 10 is actually a, a film that was in consideration for the uh, previous list that we did when we were halfway through the decade. It just missed the cut then, but it's going to make the cut this time around. You know, just the way we see films shifts over time. And the more I think about it, the more, like I said, this is a film that feels like it rang in the 2010s with a bang and in some ways really foresaw a lot of what the 2010s became about. And I'm thinking of the 2010 film from David Fincher, The Social Network. Uh, I mean, there's there's so much to say about this film that's about how great it is. You know, it's that got that great Trent Reznor score. I think Jesse Eisenberg is wonderful, sort of this flinty-eyed, uh, embittered, uh, nerd, for lack of a better term. Uh, and then it's just got that incredibly tight script from Aaron Sorkin. You can you know practically bounce coins off of it. It's just so memorable and has such verve to it. And Fincher's direction is, of course, the, the icing on the cake. Um, all of that's indisputable. It previously missed the cut because I, I remember liking it, but I was like, I don't know. There's, there's such... So many other great films of the decade. I'm just not sure if it measures up, but this is one of those films I keep coming back to again and again. Number one, because it's incredibly well-made, incredibly entertaining, if I can borrow uh, part of your Wade triangle for my own purposes. (laughs) You owe me a licensing fee. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll discuss that after the show. Um, But the other thing I, I think that really made me feel like this really needs to be on any best of the decade list for the 2010s is it really foresaw 
I mean, obviously, it's a movie about Facebook, and social media was such a defining force of of the decade, just in public life, in private life. And Fincher's film and, and working from Sorkin script really gets at something about connection in in the age of social media. The 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 way that it feels more and more like society is is defined by algorithms and not just algorithms that are written for a computer but just the social algorithms the decision making processes that human beings employ in our everyday lives when we decide whether to play by the rules or whether to break them whether we decide to be loyal to our friends or to look out for number 1 and that's something that this film really captures in incredibly sharp detail. And I think it's going to stand the test of time for that reason. People from the future are going to watch the social network in the same way that, say, we watch films from the the 50s and 60s when the threat of nuclear holocaust was hanging over everything and that found its way into the pop culture of the time. Maybe Facebook isn't a nuclear holocaust. That remains to be seen, maybe. But it's a defining force, and it's found its way into this film and into many other films of the 2010s. So I think The Social Network definitely is a good way to to ring in my top 10 list. No, it is. And I remember five years ago, it just missing your list. And... And I remember you you talking about how much you loved it. It just didn't make the cut. And it's fascinating to see how time changes our perception of films. And then how also just kind of thinking about movies and even watching them again can kind of move them around in our minds. I read somewhere, and I wish I knew who said this, but in a short review, they talked about how the casting here is key and how Justin Timberlake, who plays Sean Parker, looks like Jesse Eisenberg, even down to the the curly hair. Jesse Eisenberg wants to be Sean Parker. Zuckerberg wants to be him. And Parker is this morally dubious character, but he's an influencer. And as as you think about that and kind of what it means for social media, our desire to see this image of people and then to be attracted to that, to want to become that. And that's something that I don't know if Fincher could even see when he made this movie. But there are so many details in this film that just just reveal themselves as the years have changed and as technology has changed our perception of the world and how social media has changed the, the way that we interact with everyone else. And looking at Facebook and seeing what it's designed to be this way to make yourself seem cooler or to be perceived a certain way by others, and then how it's actually used today and the way we have to almost hack the system to to use it in a different way. It, it It's just fascinating. And I I love this movie. And, and here's the thing, too. This is rewatchable. It's one of those films that just hums along. It's one of the fastest, you know, Fincher movies made. It's a really entertaining picture. And there's so many pieces that go into this movie, but yeah, it, Social Network is is a great pick. We're done for the day. Yeah. Yeah, I was just sitting here. 
What happened to Sean? He still owns 7% of the company. All you had all day was that salad. You want to get something to eat? I can't. I'm not a bad guy. I know that. When there's emotional testimony, I assume 85% of it is exaggeration. And the other 15? Perjury. Creation myths need a devil. What happens now? Yeah, uh, I'm very happy to give it a berth uh, this go-around. Wade, what do you have to, to ring in your top 10 list? So this is a film about technology as well. And I think one of the ways that, one of the reasons why I was drawn to this movie is because of what it says about technology in our age. And it's kind of funny because in 2017, when this movie was released, it was number four on my list for the year. And it slowly climbed its way up upon rewatches and just, I don't think about this movie and reading about this movie and, um, even going through a book about the making of this movie, it's it's just really kind of changed the way that I look at this film. And that's Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. You know, Kevin, I'm, I'm kind of sad because I'm not sure when we'll see this sort of weird, challenging, science fiction, big budget film for a long time. I love Christopher Nolan, and he's going to show up here on this list, but his movies aren't weird in this kind of way. They are more geared towards large audiences. Blade Runner 2049 is a sequel to a very popular film, but it can be alienating to some people. I am convinced, though, that in 10 to 20 years, we're going to look back at this movie and we're going to say, yeah, this is a classic film. I think this movie is about the human body. Specifically, it explores a theology of the human body. It explores sexuality in the virtual age. This film is adult at times, and there is if there's one blemish for this movie, there is one gratuitous scene, and I would actually even encourage people to forward through that scene because it could be cut and the film would be much better. So it is adult, but its understanding of sexuality is is closer than the traditional perspective I, I than I thought it would be. Uh, it, it's very kind of strange the way it looks at even uh, pornography in the modern virtual age. And this movie ends with Gosling's character observing this gentle snowfall. It's a very natural moment, and we don't get very natural moments in the environment and the production design around us in this film. And this naturalness leads itself to a kind of transcendence, this kind of meaning. There are characters, especially Jared Leto's character in this film, who play God, but where does that lead them? And I think in this film, our hope and, and society's hope, uh, we find it can't be found in this technology. Uh, technology can't alleviate all of our problems. In fact, technology can alienate us from the people around us there's there's so much to talk about with this movie hans zimmer's score is fantastic i i listen to it periodically and then of course roger deakins his cinematography is just outstanding you know you could watch this movie on mute 
and still get a lot of what's going on. You could, you could feel the film just by looking at it. You can almost hear the film by looking at it. It's, it's really kind of wonderful. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised at uh, how this film has kind of leapfrogged others, but it's one that stuck with me, and um, I think it's one that's going to stick with me for, for a pretty long time. Yeah, you know, I have to say I'm, I'm a little bit surprised seeing your top 10 list, not because, uh, like, I know that you really think very highly of the film, so I'm not surprised that it was in the conversation, but for it to actually make the cut is maybe a little bit surprising. But then I think about if we were to make a list of maybe top 10 moments, movie moments of the last decade, I, I think that there would be quite a lot of shots, of scenes, maybe just the general aesthetic of Blade Runner 2049, at least in the conversation for me, because you're right that there are just such indelible passages of this film that even if I'm a little bit cooler on the film overall than you are, I still do think about it a lot. And I think one thing that this film gets at uh, that a lot of films about technology this decade have gotten at, but I think this one does a very good job of, is getting at, you know, there, there's always been this question with, with the original Blade Runner, you know, about replicants and what makes us human and what gives us a soul. And it's very easy to focus on the soul part of that equation. Like, what, you know, what is this indescribable something that makes human beings human beings and makes robots just automatons? And in this film, Denis Villeneuve really locates that not in some insubstantial spiritual spirit thing, uh, but in physicality, in incarnation, in the body. I think a lot of that uh, that sex scene, speaking of the sexuality of this film, between uh, Gosling's main character and Joy, his his girlfriend who is a hologram, and she hires another person to essentially be her physical stand-in for a romantic encounter with Gosling's character. And there's something very creepy about that scene, but there's also something achingly sad about it, about somebody who has all the consciousness of of a self-aware, sentient person, but doesn't have the body to go with it, and how that is felt as a genuine lack. And that genuine lack, kind of the gulf between the replicants of these worlds and uh, the human beings of these worlds, the, the gulf that they feel between where they are and where they want to be is very, very sad. And something that, that really sticks with me even, you know, years later after seeing the film. Yes. And if, you know, if the original film... Ridley Scott's film is what makes what, what makes someone human. I, I think you could almost say with this movie is what makes a human a machine. And it's fascinating that technology is touched on so much in this movie because that that could be the key. That our technology can almost erode our humanness. And that's definitely a, to a topic, you know, to, we discuss as Christians when we talk about what does it mean to be made in God's image and what does it mean to debase that and how our tools for the future, our desire to play God in some ways can erode who we were created to be. So yeah, so much kind of going on with this movie, so many moments that you could talk about. You could talk about 
Gosling's early scene with with Joy in the rain, where the rain kind of uh, cuts through her hologram. Yeah, there's just there's a lot of fascinating moments, and it can cause me to overlook some of the plot because I I think in the end, the plot isn't as important as uh, I I think some people maybe think it is. I I think it's really more about the feelings and about the ideas and about these characters and the journey that they go on. Um, And that's not to say the plot isn't is you know it's bad i i think it's good but um yeah there's just there's really a lot to dig in your bag it's colonial medical use military issue where were you Quanta? must have been brutal plan on taking me in well take a look inside Mr. Morton, if taking you in is an option. I would much prefer that to the alternative. I'm sure you know it would be someone in time. I'm sorry it had to be me. Good as any. Yeah, it's... A good one for sure, and I have a feeling that it's not going to be the the only film that really digs into technology. I have a feeling that technology <laughs> and our relationship to it is going to be something that comes up again and again as we walk through the our lists. But I am going to not go to technology for my number nine, uh, but I am going to stick with the the theme of spirituality and the feeling of 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 loss or, or of lack and that of course is going to be 2018's first reformed written and directed by paul schrader and this is another situation where i i included it just because it seemed to capture something quintessential about the 2010s First Reformed wasn't even my number one movie of 2018. That would go. That award would go to "You Were Never Really Here" by Lynn Ramsey, which just missed the cut on this list. But I I flipped the script on this one and brought First Reformed in because its themes of a man of God feeling uh, particularly alienated from his faith. A man of God feeling such strong grief and despair over the the immorality of the human race in general, their disregard for the good gifts that God has given them, and the way that manifests in this sort of curdled bitterness and anger. I, I just think there's something about that that a lot of Christians over the last over the last five years, uh, especially, uh, can really can can sympathize with that after seeing what has been occurring uh, in our country. Um, it's something that at least has been on my heart a lot, and I think a lot about just how Schrader does not flinch back from portraying the ugliness of Ethan Hawke's reverend in in his really yielding himself completely over to this kind of despair that's that's something that i sympathize with a lot but i think that there's there's a way in which it throws into sharp relief 
through that hopelessness, the possibility of hope. And whether or not you think that Schrader really buys into that hope a whole lot is is debatable, particularly maybe in how different viewers might interpret the ending of First Reformed. But I think there's so much here in the austere style, the cinematography by Alexander Dynan, that captures a, a chilliness and a barrenness that really reflects the barrenness of the protagonist's faith and his struggle to really work against that in his own small faltering ways. I think it's an indelible film for a lot of reasons. I think that it's got a long life ahead of it. It falls into a tradition in in cinema that has been well documented, the transcendental style, Brasson, Ozu. Um, Schrader plays with his own history by putting in references to Taxi Driver in the film. It's just, it's a true original, and I'm really happy that it's in the world. So First Reformed is my number nine pick. So this is, this is not on my top 10, but I am also very happy that it is in the world and there's so much to talk about with this film. And, you know, just, just talk about the Academy ratio of this movie. And it, it feels like a classic, it feels like a classic movie going along with some of those giants that you named uh, just a bit ago. And at the same time, it pauses to consider whether this old-fashioned faith has any place in our world. And it truly is an apocalyptic movie. And if you look at apocalyptic literature, there are a couple different kinds. One is, hey, the world's ending, we're going to burn everything down. And the other is, the world's ending, but it's okay because, because God wins. And this film definitely leans into the burn it all down, but there are traces of, well, could there be hope? And what does that mean for us to hope? And I think you could even watch this movie, and maybe you come down on the side of, well, it is more pessimistic than optimistic. It does force us to consider what we believe and our perspective on the environment and our perspective on human morality and where this planet is is going. And does faith have a place here? And what does that faith look like? Is it this fancy megachurch or is it just an old-fashioned back-to-the-basics type of faith and yeah there really is a lot to, to wrestle with with this movie and I'm, I'm glad it's on your list Kevin because like you said and I mentioned earlier I'm so grateful that it exists and I'm excited about hopefully more movies like that existing in this next decade there's there's hope because there seems to be this almost renaissance in explicit religious cinema and I hope to see more movies like First Reformed. Yeah, Schrader, his vision of religion is very spiky, but it's very serious. And I, I just think that that's an absolutely essential uh, dual quality for, for him to have and for, for other films that do deal with religious themes to, to also have. I wasn't aware that I had offended. Jesus didn't want our suffering. He suffered for us. Mm -hmm. He wants our commitment and our obedience. And what of his creation? The heavens declare the glory of God. God is present everywhere in every 
plant, every river, every tiny insect. The whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence. I think this is an issue where, where the church can lead, but, but they say nothing. The, the U.S. Congress still denies climate change? Where were we when these people were elected? What do you have to answer to the dyspeptic uh, vision of Ethanoc pouring Pepto-Bismol into his whiskey? What do you have at your number nine to, to match that? Yeah, you know, so if we're talking about technology and its propensity to tear people apart, we do have to look at technology and the times that it has brought people together. And one is the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. So my number nine is Apollo 11 by Todd Douglas Miller. So it was my favorite film of last year. I don't want to go on and on about this movie because last month I went on and on about this movie. But this is a film that tells at once this this visually stunning and thematically rich story. And it does feel like a story. It feels like a saga, even though we are watching archival footage of the first astronauts landing on the moon. This is the only documentary that I have on my list, and I I think it's the one that I resonate with the most over this last decade. The landing on the moon is one of the few historic events that was captured almost entirely on, on film. We see it happened from beginning to end. And all of us are familiar with the pictures. We're familiar with the video clips. And yet, Miller brings the event alive by creating what I believe to be cinematic poetry. So this is the story of humanity's journey to the moon, but it's also the story of our search for significance. And I think it's especially timely, not just in 2019, but here now in this decade, because it does show how unity can help us to do incredible things. At the same time, it reminds us that sometimes we can do incredible things and then forget all about them and move on and not really give them our time and our attention. And what does this mean for us today? What does it mean to put these types of endeavors in our budget? What does it mean to want to explore new places? And then also, what does it say about us as human beings? And especially for someone who's a Christian, it it seems to denote this desire for transcendence and for significance and this desire to understand the world around us. Because when we do understand the world around us, whether we realize it or not, we are learning a little bit about our creator when we look at the creation. So Todd Douglas Miller's Apollo 11 is my number nine of the decade. I'd like to know what you feel uh, as far as the responsibilities of representing mankind on this trip. That's uh, relatively difficult to, to answer. Uh, it's a job that, that we collectively said that, that was possible and we could do. And, and of course, that the nation itself is backing us. So we just sincerely hope that we measure up to that.
Apollo program was designed to get two Americans to the lunar surface and back again to Earth safely. The enormity of this event is something that only history will be able to judge. <laughs> it is kind of funny that this ended up at, at your number nine uh, across from First Reformed because, I don't know, I, I would be interested to experience a double feature with these two films on the bill where first reformed is this very very despairing look at what humanity has has wrought through its uh progress on the environment and has this very hopeless view of it apollo 11 is almost the the opposite side of that coin where it looks at that ingenuity and it celebrates just what we're capable of when we put when we direct those energies and that kind of ingenuity towards towards good rather than towards exploitation and i think that you're right that this documentary simply by nature of being a documentary using this archival footage doesn't really need to play up the theatrics of it at all it just puts the apollo 11 moon landing on screen and just lets it be there to be goggled at by us in the audience it's it's really quite an achievement so i'm glad to see it on your list yeah and you know if i'm thinking about uh, one of my regrets this last year is not seeing this on the big screen and i was in i was in dc uh last week week and a half ago and i stopped in at the Air and Space Smithsonian because I wanted to just quickly check out Neil Armstrong's suit because they have it on display. And I'm walking by the, the their little theater and it's Apollo 11 playing in IMAX and didn't have time Whoa. to get to it. I didn't have time to get to it. And it just made me sad. And I was looking at this list and five of the 10 films on this list I didn't get a chance to see in theaters. And I think that it's just availability. And then also the first half of the decade, I didn't see movies as much as I, I was able to, or I'm able to now, uh, just because of life circumstances. Um, but yeah, you know, I almost wish that you could put some of these screenings together and, and see some of these movies, you know, even if you've already seen them on screen, see them again to experience them. And Apollo 11 would be at the top of my list. I, you know, I wish I could see it in IMAX. It, I, it, would, it would be incredible. It would be incredible. Well, well, wait. You'll you'll be in my. I'll ha- you'll have my thoughts and prayers that one day <laughs> you will encounter an IMAX showing of Apollo Eleven, and you will have the time to sit down and, yes. and watch it. That is that is my hope for you. <laughs> well, you know, uh, prayers. Maybe I'll just fly to DC just to do that and fly home uh, and knock it off the bucket list. There you go. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Well. Um, I, I hope that I endeared myself to you with uh, the thoughts and prayers bit because I have a feeling that I'm going to get a little bit of ribbing from you for my number eight pick, and this is a <laughs> film that was on my yeah this was this was on my list with our previous episode about our best of the decade so far. It has not gone off the list, and in fact, I think I bumped it up a spot for this episode today it is shane carruth's 2013 film upstream color now we talked about a little bit with the social network about how a lot of it was about connection about the ways that relationships human relationships work the ways that that can be colored by technology or various experiences we've had and carruth's film is just 
I love the way that it has this very elusive, very oblique style, but it explores the exact same thing. It tells the story of of two people, a man and a woman. They somehow get exposed to these uh, parasites that link them mentally and allow them to have shared experiences of some sort. And there are genetically engineered pigs involved and special plants, and it gets pretty wild. And it's the sort of film that you really have to buy into to get on its wavelength in order to enjoy. I think that if you manage to do that, though, it reveals itself as an absolute masterpiece. Carruth is basically almost a one-man show. He's He plays the lead uh, male role. He wrote it. He directed it. I think he he edited it. It's just so it's just such a pure distillation of a single creative vision you can absolutely see that on screen and the way it is all knit together utterly seamlessly so it takes you on this wild ride through such an outlandish premise but by the end you're utterly absorbed in its world and you feel an emotional height not because Caruth is manipulating you with dramatics but simply because the power of his filmmaking is so great. And I this is a film that every time I rewatch, I think, you know, I, I like this film, sure. But is it really as good as I remember it being? And when I finish the film, I'm like, yep, it is exactly as good as I remember it being. So <laughs> upstream color, I'm doubling down on it, Wade. It's at my number eight. <laughs> so... In the movie Birdman, Birdman's not on my list, uh, by the way. It came out the last decade. Okay, good. But uh, one of the characters, he says, you know, I, I want to pull your eyes out of your head and put them in my own skull, look around so I could see the street like I used to when I was your age. And <laughs> <laughs> when I hear people talk about upstream color, I want to do that. I want to see the world through their eyes. I want to see this film through their eyes because it just doesn't hit me emotionally like it does for other people. And I think that's where it is. I think with this film, there's there's this emotional quality. And from what I understand, if it hits you, it hits you. But for me, I just feel kind of... I feel kind of lost. And so whenever I hear people talk about this movie, I just, uh, I don't quite, it's weird. I just don't quite get it the way that they do, but it's loved by so many people. And I've seen it pop up on so many end of the decade lists. And I was like, oh, I forgot about that movie. It, you know, people still really do like it. And um, it's, it seems like it's here to stay. So there it is. (laughs) I I have to also keep beating the the Carruth drum because he hasn't made a feature film since Upstream Color came out. He hasn't been able to get funding for his projects, which is just makes me very sad. And I want to make sure that his name stays in the conversation because I think he's low key one of the most talented young American filmmakers that we have right now. And I just I really want to see more out of him. And Upstream Color is a great example of what he can do when he has the the funding and the resources to, to realize his vision. 
you know, I, I mentioned that I I had thoughts and prayers for you regarding Apollo 11. Wade, I'm also going to send up a prayer that one day you two will see the light and embrace <laughs> the good news of upstream color. You know, I, I think he's I think he's from Texas, so maybe I'll run into him one day, and I can see the world through him. He'll explain what it means. He'll say, "Here's what upstream color means," and I'll just get it. It'll click. Um, until then, yeah. Until then, <laughs> I mean, he he might also be like David Lynch, where you ask him to explain something, and he will just simply say no and leave it at that. So I I don't know. I would get my hopes up if I were you. Wayne. He seems he seems more like that guy. Uh, to be honest, he does. <laughs> yeah. Um. So moving on to my number eight. Uh, if we're talking about very abstract films, uh, this is a very straightforward movie. And it's one of those that I saw in theaters and I was like, oh, this movie is really great. And then I saw it again. I was like, oh, this is incredible. And then I saw it again recently and it was emotional. And it might seem strange because it, it's Bennett Miller's uh, 2001 film Moneyball. And so it, it, you know, Moneyball tells the story of Oakland A's general manager, Billy Bean. He's played by Brad Pitt. And he assembles a baseball team on this incredibly small budget by using computer analytics. And he really kind of changes... The game. The film also stars Jonah Hill and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And just on a personal level, I, I talked about how, you know, this, I was going to try to experience these films through a personal level. This has been the craziest sports decade for me personally. So I, I'm a huge Georgia Bulldog fan. They go to the national championship and lose on this wild play in overtime. And it was just like this, you know, at one moment, just the greatest sports feeling of my life, and then the worst sports feeling of my life. And then, you know, the Houston Astros, uh, they have this great team, and uh, they win the World Series. And then uh, two years later, they go to the World Series again, and I'm at Game 7, and we're leading in the seventh inning, and then they go on to lose that, and then it comes out that in 2017, uh, they were cheating. And it's just it it just changed everything for me uh in regards to just that team and that and that memory uh and you know there's so many people talking about it i'm not gonna even really get into it i still love the astros of course but moneyball is about a character who wants to be great he wants to win it all and in one sense when you talk about sports if you don't win a championship right which is reserved to one team every year. If you don't win that championship, you, your season is technically a failure. And I know, I know it's not always perceived exactly like that, but if you don't win the championship, you, you didn't win the championship, even if you go to game seven, even if you go to overtime. In fact, going that far might make it hurt even more. And you have this character who wants to be the best and who kind of do what he needs to do to get there. And then there's this other side of the movie where he's trying to learn to appreciate the moments. And and the, the film ends with his daughter and she's recorded the song for him. And she says, just enjoy the show. And I was very emotional this last time I watched it because I was like, that is, that's sports, right? You have to learn to want to be great 
and and yet you've got to enjoy just the victories along the way when you can because they might not always be there and then there's also something to um athleticism and it, it reminds it reminds me of who created our our bodies and even in this analytics based system in this film you see Brad Pitt's character really kind of targeting players who were underappreciated or quote unquote washed up and so there there's this human factor even involved in this computer system you know all that to say is i think the direction too is great i think this is one of Brad Pitt's best roles. He's one of the best performers of the decade, in my my opinion. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays Art Howe, is he's just great in his low key baseball manager way. And then I think Jonah Hill is probably you know the funniest he's ever been. So this is one of those movies I just kind of keep going back to, and I keep I, I remember these shots. There are these shots where characters are catching the ball or hitting the ball, and they're very artistic. They're almost in this um, abstract landscape, and and the stadium sort of dims around them, and in slow motion as they hit the ball, there's something kind of being said in these in these moments when you would normally get kind of traditional photography, and Miller kind of changes it up a little bit. So, Moneyball uh, maybe a strange pick, but it really is uh, one of my favorites of the decade uh, at number eight. I may lose my job. In which case, I'm a 44-year-old guy with a high school diploma and a daughter I'd like to be able to send to college. You're 25 years old with a degree from Yale and a pretty impressive apprenticeship. I don't think we're asking the right question. I think the question we should be asking is, do you believe in this thing or not? I do. It's a problem you think we need to explain ourselves. Don't. To anyone. Okay. Well, it's definitely an outside-the-box pick. I didn't know that I expected it to make it all the way up to to your number eight, so maybe this is sort of... Uh, if if I have upstream color on my list, you have Moneyball on your list. <laughs> yeah, right. Because this is this is a, a sort of situation where I kind of would like to see the world through your eyes a little bit because, you know, sports movies, I'm not a big sports person and I appreciate them, but there's that extra level of poetry that uh, I'm just, I, I don't find as much as other critics find in, in the sports genre. Um, so it, it's, it's instructive for me to hear... Uh, perspectives like yours on films like Moneyball. I wish I could share them, but I guess that's part of the fun of reading film criticism is <laughs> I get to experience those new perspectives fresh. Yeah. Well, and, and too, you know, if this were a similar film, but about soccer, I probably wouldn't, it probably wouldn't resonate with me all that much. Uh, so there is this personal element involved in sports films, but most sports films are not very good, and so it's fascinating to see something as as well done and as artistic and as, as thoughtful as this, and one that kind of, instead of just going into this, oh yeah, you know, hoorah, win the championship, it does kind of walk that line of like, well, how do you enjoy the moments, and, and what happens when you lose, and, and, and what happens when you do want to be the best, and what does that drive you to do, and you know, certainly something that's very pertinent in, in the sport of baseball right now. 
Yeah, well, I'll I'll leave it at that before I we get into territory that I just have no idea what I'm talking about and move on to my number seven, which uh, gets into uh, maybe a little bit more mannered territory, but territory that I love deeply. Uh, at my number seven, I've got Wes Anderson's 2014 film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm not sure if this is my pick for Anderson's best movie. It's definitely up there. It's probably tied with Royal Tenenbaums, maybe. I just, I love the Grand Budapest Hotel so much. I think it's probably Anderson's, the, the film of Anderson's that, at least for me, evokes the most complex emotion. And I think probably has the most complex structure of it. So this is a film that takes place in different time periods. There's sort of the the modern day uh, where uh, a an aging proprietor of a hotel is is being interviewed, and he tells his experience coming up as a young man at the Grand Budapest Hotel as a uh, just starting out. He's he's young. He's wet behind the ears, and he is taken under the wing of Monsieur Gustave, played by a wonderful Rafe Fiennes. And he just, he tells about his experience uh, and his friendship working under this man. But I love the film as a whole because it captures a particular quality of nostalgia that I found a lot to appreciate, especially, again, as we deal with a lot of the the really difficult fallout of the 2010s. You know, for a lot of people uh, to look back over, over the past decade is to see sort of this rising tide of something that was maybe always there in, in American culture, but that maybe we were blind to. At least speaking personally, that's true of me. And the Grand Budapest Hotel does a really wonderful job of portraying the the death of something that's maybe a little bit archaic, maybe a little bit problematic, but there's a sort of nobility to it that will be utterly missed when it's gone, and there won't be anything really that takes its place. Gustave, Rafe Fine's character in this film, he is isn't the most the most moral person in the world. He's he's got his his foibles, his flaws, but in his own way, he is very noble. And when the film comes to an end and we kind of return to the present day and see that, you know, the Grand Budapest Hotel, which was once so grand, is slowly decaying and the old world order that it represents is decaying and disappearing along with it, there's a mournfulness to that that, that I think is really good for us to sit with and that Anderson does so well in evoking for us. And I, I think that that's, that's where nostalgia can be at its best, where we remember what was good about the past, not because the past was perfect, but because we miss what it meant to us. And we wish that those good parts of it could be brought into our modern day and and help guide us in some way. I, I, don't know, I think the Grand Pest Hotel, it, it's, it's the stylization of of Anderson that really brings that to life. And I think that his very signature, very particular stylization, his his 
own personal style, I think, fits this story perfectly and has maybe never been better suited uh, to to his stylization. So I I just I love this film a lot and uh, I haven't seen it in a, in a little while, so I might be getting a little bit nostalgic for it, which seems appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to watch this movie again, too. I liked it a lot. I think it's my my second favorite Wes Anderson film. I, I like his more grounded Rushmore in terms of stylization, but I do agree with you that that the stylization, this very particular stylization that begins a few films before Grand Budapest reaches its heights here. And you mentioned that it it really works along with this story that is so much about architecture and it is so much about the passing of time. And I think all of that comes together extremely well. You know, I watched the trailer for his his new film coming out, The French Dispatch, and I'm probably wrong, but it, it it's almost as if it it's starting to feel like a parody of Wes Anderson. And I I, I really do like the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I, I want maybe more of that. And, and it's hard to put my finger on where I feel like he's, he's going. But um, this is just one of those movies that I think everything works. And it, it works along with this kind of melancholy nature that he has in all of his movies. It really kind of sticks well here, especially towards the end. And it's, I think it's a meaningful story and a meaningful movie. And um, it's, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorites from him. Yeah, it's it's really good, and I am very much looking to the French Dispatch when when it gets released. There's something I haven't told you, Agatha. Okay. You stole a painting. It's very valuable, maybe five million clubbacks, in fact. I don't know if anyone's even noticed it's missing it, but if something should happen to me and Mr. Gustav... You steal art? One picture. Anyway, we need to make a plan for your survival. Hide this. It's in code, and you might need a magnifying glass to read it, but it tells you exactly where and how to find Boy with Apple. Don't take less than half the retail asking price. Also, Zero, I'm a baker. You're a pastry chef, one of the best in the region. I'm not a fence, if that's the term. I don't trade in stolen property. I said it wrong. She willed it to him. Go to sleep. Yes, Herr Mendel. No. Okay, but take it anyway. So uh, my number seven is from a very prominent director of the 2010s. You know, if you're thinking about somebody who's really kind of changed cinema during this last decade, you've got to talk about Christopher Nolan. And my favorite film from him over this past decade is the 2017 film Dunkirk. This follows Operation Dynamo, where the Allied soldiers are evacuated from northern France in 1940. This is a very immersive experience, and Nolan strips down some of the complications that usually surround his narrative, and he tells a very straightforward story. Now, he still does it in a very unconventional way. This is a story about time. The the score at times feels like the or sounds like the clicking of a watch. These characters are running out of time, and the way that the film is organized is based on certain lengths 
of time. This is one of those movies that suggests that we can't always defeat evil with simply violence, but it does argue that winning requires creativity, perseverance, and courage. So we can't negate sort of the physical strength that was exhibited by the Allied army during World War II, but we have to understand that's not really the only reason that they won. At the end of the movie, a few characters, they run across a blind man. And this is kind of Nolan's way of telling the audience that we can't always see what makes a person great. Heroes come in all shapes and sizes in the film. And for a humanist filmmaker like Nolan, who often operates in this kind of realm of physicality, Nolan does hint here at a greater mystery in the universe. Qualities like bravery, morality, and honor can't be bought and they can't be mined through simple physical training. In some ways, they're holy qualities, kind of spiritual qualities. And I think overall, Dunkirk kind of reminds me of this quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. That's from the screw tape letters. And we see courage here in this film. And we could go on and on about just the immersive quality of it, but it's one that puts you in the moment. And it's one, given the way that it's composed, uh, leads to high quality repeated viewings. I think my second viewing of this film was uh, a, even a step up from my first viewing. Uh, it just it ages fairly well in my opinion. And it goes, I guess it goes to what I talked about a, a bit ago, and that's rewatchability. And I think Dunkirk is a rewatchable film, as are I think uh, really kind of all of Nolan's films. I really like. Inception, um, I, I think it's a good film. And even Interstellar is a good film, uh, you know, during this decade. Uh, but yeah, Christopher Nolan, number seven, Dunkirk. Dunkirk is a really strong film for sure, and I feel like Nolan doesn't get enough credit for this film, for just how 
well-constructed it is. I feel like people like to rag on Nolan for being, you know, he's kind of an ideas guy, but the actual visuals of his film just aren't all that impressive. And regardless of how much stock you place in that argument, I think Dunkirk is just so borderline avant-garde in its structure, the way it's got those three different timelines and the way that he handles chronology throughout the film, cutting between them so that you're never lost about which timeline you're following it at any given moment. And yet the way that he has them all eventually coincide and converge uh, towards the end and has that final climax with Tom Hardy's uh, plane sort of gliding over the shoreline. (laughs) I mean, I, I defy anyone to to watch this film and and look me in the eye and tell me that it's not a very visually and structurally accomplished film. It's it's really it's really strong and it didn't make my top ten list, but I respect its birth in your top ten list a lot. <laughs> well, no, I appreciate that, and yet I think the imagery in this film is just incredible, and that last image with Tom Hardy just in in front of that plane as he's about to be captured and understanding really the sacrifice that it takes to win the war and to protect the people around him. I mean, it really is a a moment of defiance and you can feel that along with him gliding like an angel just, just across the ocean and towards, towards the land. It's it's an emotional movie. It it really is when all the boats come and everything. And yeah, I I like the I like it a lot. And um, it's it's one that I was really glad to be able to see in IMAX. Just listening to some of those gunshots and um, it, we joke about Christopher Nolan because he's always he's always wants us to see his films in a particular way. Uh, but I I don't think he's just doing that to do that here. I, I think you really you know you really need to see this film on a big screen. I'm I'm glad I did. Yeah, and and I mean, for what it's worth, I will take the portrayal of war in Dunkirk any day over the the spectacular showiness of something like 1917. I think Dunkirk really gets at something quintessential about warfare and combat that Sam Mendes can can only hope to, to gesture at. So mm-hmm. there's there's me on my little soapbox there. No, uh, hopefully <laughs> I, I haven't. I completely agree. <laughs> I, I, I hope I uh, listeners who are who are fans of 1917 aren't too put off by me. I uh, I just I like Dunkirk that much, I guess. Uh, but moving on um, at, to my number six is a film that you know. Speaking of warfare and and tension, I think this next film is maybe one of the most tense viewing experiences you are likely to have. In the last decade, and it's a domestic drama. I'm thinking, of course, of Asghar Farhadi's 2011 film, A Separation. And wait, this is one of the the films that I actually made uh, an effort to rewatch before we sat down to record because, again, this is a film that I thought very highly of when it first came out, but it's also, it had been like eight years since I'd seen it. So I thought, well, you know, I need to revisit it to see if it's 
you know, refresh my memory on it, see if it's actually as strong as I remember it being. And I spent the entire time, even though I, you know, I'd seen it before, I knew where it ended up, I knew all the different moving pieces of the conflict between a husband, a wife, and the caretaker that they hire. I knew all of that, and still my stomach was just completely in knots for almost the entire viewing experience. This is a film that really is just so tightly constructed. Farhadi tells this story of uh, you know people who are so uh, principled, who who have such strong feelings about what thing, how things should be, what is just, and have such a locked-in view of their own perspective to the exclusion of others that when those perspectives come into conflict with each other, there's just this intractable conflict that, that happens and you you honestly almost can't bear to watch how they grind up against each other and create all this friction. And Farhadi just, it's it's mostly just people in rooms having conversations with each other, arguing with each other. But it's those, the way that he uses his camera within those rooms, I think makes it really special. Watching it this uh, this most recent time, I thought a lot of Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. The way in Rashomon, it plays with perspective. Uh, Kurosawa emphasizes the gaze of, you know, characters looking at each other and the way that Kurosawa manipulates the audience's perspective on these characters simply uh, by shifting which character is looking at that person. Farhadi does something really similar where he lets us really see the world through the eyes of each of the main players in this drama, and he doesn't really try to make somebody out to be perfectly blameless. There's nobody who's perfectly blameless. They're they're all just locked inside their own perspectives. And Farhadi lets us spend time in each of those perspectives so that we don't really know who to side with. And for a film that in the end is really about what is justice and when is mercy called for, I think it's it's utterly brilliant because this is a film that will make you long for mercy mm. and doesn't necessarily deliver it. I think it's brilliant. And if it weren't for the brilliance of the five films ahead of it, this would be at my number one. I think it's just, <laughs> it's, it's really something special. Yeah. Did you, did you watch this movie last night? Uh, I did. I, I watched it last night too. I, I, it was on my list uh, five years ago and I knew I needed to see it again. And as, as much as, I knew the film was great. I was like, oh, yeah, it was great. But, you know, maybe on the second viewing, I'll, yeah, I know the mystery, right? And, uh, no, I watched it again. And I was just like, this, this is incredible because even if you know what's going to happen, it, it allows you and it allowed me to look at the nuances of this relationship because this is kind of, this is a huge story, but it's also about, a marriage. It's about these two characters. And it's funny because you talk about characters who, you know, just can't agree. Um, for once in this podcast, uh, we have a, uh, a pick, right? At the same time, uh, that's the same pick. My number six is also a separation from Farhadi. Uh, so we have that in common, Kevin. We, we're not fighting about everything today. Um, <laughs> no, no. And 
just the little details, even even the architecture, right? You've got this apartment and it's as if kind of one side juts out and then you walk through a hallway and another side juts out. And so these characters are in the apartment looking out of a window at other characters who are also in that same apartment. And there's this disconnect. There is glass that separates these characters in a number of different shots. And something I also noticed here too, Kevin, is I'm watching this on Netflix. It's currently streaming on Netflix. And of course the subtitles are on. And when a character, when we can't see the character's mouth, when they speak, Netflix, the subtitles, puts their name in front of of their words. And so because of that, I'm starting to realize more and more how how many times characters are speaking and they're not looking at the camera. And the people are looking at the back of them. And we see this kind of disjointed dialogue. It, it kind of visualizes this ditch, disjointed dialogue throughout the film of these characters kind of talking and people not really truly understanding or hearing them. It's as if they're, they're listening, but they're staring at the backs of their head and they're turned to the camera. It, there's really kind of so much in this movie. I, I've, I've written down this quote. I want to read this quote to you. And Kevin, I had posted this on a Facebook thread that you had a couple weeks ago, but it's something that I've, I put in uh, this new work that I'm, I'm writing. And it's a quote from The Next Picture Show. It was an episode on Abbas Kirstami's work, uh, another Iranian filmmaker. And Keith Phipps, Phipps said, uh, he says, when people talk about bombing Iran and attacking Iran, it's hard to think about those things when you've wandered the streets with these characters. And any time, you know, I watch Farhadi's work or I watch Kiristami's work and I just get to be with these characters, it really just changes my perspective. And I feel like this is one of those, one of the first modern foreign films that I, that I just embraced five years ago. And it, it was certainly one of the. It was certainly the first Iranian film that I embraced. It just kind of wholeheartedly before I saw some other works, and it really did a lot for me. And it was so great to watch it last night and be like, "Oh, this is this is even better than I thought it was." And that's always great because <laughs> that didn't happen with another film. I'll, I'll mention later. Uh, it actually fell in my estimation, but uh, yeah, my pick too. My number six is a uh, separation. Yeah, uh, a separation. I think was number seven on the best of the decade list that we did. You know, all those years ago, and here it is, uh, having scooted up one spot. And I wish I could scoot it up more. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, it's so difficult. It's like, yeah, sure, it could be number one, and I wouldn't bat an eye, right? Um, it, it just gets so hard, listeners. Those are our first five picks. Uh, we're digging in deep here. We're going to come back in just a few moments, and we're going to go through our one through five. It's going to be a, a lot of fun, and and we might even argue a little bit. I don't know, um, but we got some <laughs> we got some good films coming up. We would encourage you to let us know what your favorite films of the decade are. You don't have to tell us, you know, number one through five if you don't want. Maybe you just want to say, hey, these are some of my favorites. Uh, make sure to tweet us at C Belief Pod at C Belief Pod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You could even say, hey, I really agree with this list or, hey, I don't understand why that film is there. It's good, but it's not great. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We're going to be back in just a moment. Listeners, don't go anywhere.
Listeners, we want to take an opportunity to tell you about our Patreon campaign and also something special if you're liking our conversation so far. You know, Kevin, there are so many picks that we don't have a chance to get to in this episode. So many great movies. We're actually uh, going to be releasing a Patreon-only episode where we talk about our 11 through 20 picks. So it allows us to kind of dig in deeper. Maybe you listen, listeners, to this episode and you say, oh, what about this movie or this movie or this movie? Uh, Hopefully, we'll address some of those in our 11 through 20 discussion. And it's only, Kevin, available to our our secret exclusive Patreon members. Yeah, it, it is a way for us to, you know, thank our, our patrons for sticking with us and for uh, shooting some of their hard-earned cash our way. We really appreciate all the support that they give us, both financial and otherwise. We want to give them a little something to to enjoy as, as a thanks from us to them. We also, <laughs> at least part of my motivation for doing it is a little bit of self-justification. Like I, I want to cover all of my bases in case somebody comes back at me and says, well, how could you forget this movie or that movie? I'll say, well, hey, you know, you just need to become a patron and listen to the patron only episode. And I'm sure that it, I covered it in, in, in there in my 11 through 20. So I didn't forget about it. It just barely missed the cut, but yeah, it's all, it's all going to be on the record in that bonus episode. Well, it'll definitely will hopefully reduce the angry letters uh, that we'll receive. I, I keep waiting <laughs> for a letter, you know, to get an actual physical letter with someone talking about our podcast episode. I would love it, whether it's angry or not. I think it'd be great. Listeners, you can sign up for our Patreon campaign. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We're going to get that discussion out there hopefully before too long. So if you're a Patreon supporter, uh, we'll kind of send out an email and let you know when it has released. But be looking for that. Once again, go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. back for the second half of our episode and the second half of our lists, Wade, which means, of course, 
the top five picks that we have for <laughs> our favorite movies of the last decade, the best movies of the last decade, the most decade-defining movies of the last decade, however you choose to put it. I'm looking forward to counting these down. I am especially looking forward to uh, witnessing you squirm as you try to... <laughs> try to whittle them down to that last five. Like, that involves some hard cuts, so I'm looking forward to seeing the fruits of your labor. Yeah, I mean, whenever I hit Avengers Endgame at number one, um, it's going to be pretty wild. So just yeah. just be ready it, for it. <laughs> I, I, you know, Wade, if you do that, I'm going to get my own Infinity Gauntlet so I can do a snap that wipes out half of the seeing and believing hosts <laughs> in the universe. So I wonder just which beware one's going to hang out. Uh, <laughs> It'll it'll I'm it'll be totally uh, random, yes. totally unbiased. Yes. I'm I'm sure. Um, so before we jump into our number five through number one spots, uh, let's really really quickly uh, recap what we had in the first half of the episode. Uh, what were your ten through six picks? Yeah. So number ten is Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. Number nine is Todd Douglas Miller's 2019 Apollo 11. It's a documentary. Number eight is Bennett Miller's 2011 Moneyball. Number seven is Christopher Nolan's 2017 Dunkirk. And number six is Asghar Farhadi's 2011 film, A Separation. Yeah, that's a good batch. My number 10 starts off with David Fincher's 2010 film, The Social Network, written by Aaron Sorkin. At number nine, I had Paul Schrader's First Reformed from 2018. Number eight was taken up by Shane Carruth's 2013 masterpiece, Upstream Color. At number seven, I stuck in Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel from 2014. And I also had a separation at my number six spot because it's a super great movie. So now that we've gotten those out of the way, Wade, let's let's kick off our top five movies of the 2010s what do you have at your number five spot yeah so i think this one at number five is probably the most quote unquote blockbuster of my picks but i have it here because it is as perfect of an action film as you can get now when we sat down and we did our 2015 best of the decade so far list i remember mentioning this film and saying hey it just released I could see it on here, but I'm not going to pull any triggers this quickly. Uh, but it did move up to number five, and that's Mad Max Fury Road by, of course, George Miller. This is this is just fantastic world building, and this is one of those films that I think has changed and will continue to change the action genre. I think it's also one of those movies that is poised to continually remind action filmmakers of the importance of real-world physicality. These characters produce symphonic stunt work, lyrical choreography. I mentioned in my original review that they're almost smudged ballerinas gliding smoothly along the four corners of the screen this is a fun movie to watch i saw it a number of times in theaters i've watched it you know a number of times 
outside of theaters, I, I own it, and it gets better every single time. At the core of this movie, too, uh, Fury Road offers us, I think, a thematically rich story. In that same original review, I wrote this, For all its depictions of depravity, Fury Road offers us a world worth fighting for. When society descends into hell, the natural inclination is to escape. But what if we circle back to reclaim the damaged for good? Miller's work, while grim, hints at the hope of redemption and significance. So once again, if we're thinking about the 2010s, we're thinking about the decade of the apocalypse and how apocalyptic films came to the forefront. Apocalyptic television shows became popular. This is one that leans into that, but ends on a hopeful note. I think there's something to be said here. Um, so that's one of the reasons why it's number five, Mad Max Fury Road. You know, last year I was on a transatlantic flight and, you know, they had all the, the movie selections available and I was trying to decide, do I really want to watch one of these movies on this transatlantic flight, you know, it's it's noisy. You've got that tiny screen. Sometimes the the movie is just chopped up uh, in into unrecognizable bits. It's just it's not my favorite way to watch a movie. But I did see that Mad Max Fury Road was one of the offerings, and I thought, well, you know, if it's if it's uh, really just a terrible viewing experience, I can always turn it off because I've seen it before. It's not a big deal, and I watched it from beginning to end. And I think part of it is because. Even with all of the airplane noise, that film works almost as well as a silent film as it does as a standard, you know, uh, blockbuster with sound. And I think that's a testament to George Miller's visual craft in making this film. He's his framing of the shots is just dead on. The action choreography is perfect, and it's such a simple story. There's not a, a whole lot of plot to the film. It's just nonstop propulsiveness, go, 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 from almost minute one. And I think that's so visually engaging that I could almost watch it without the sound on and still have a great time with it. Says a lot about how good it is. It's a strong pick. Even though I don't have it on, on my own top 10 list, I, I respect a list that has it as high as you do. <laughs> well, it is fascinating that you watched it on the airplane and just the, the sound design is incredible in that movie. But yeah, you can, oh, yeah. Same, same thing is you can mute it and, it and it's fine. I do have to say this. I was on a flight recently. There was a selection and one of the selections was The Wolf of Wall Street, another 2010s film. And I wondered that would either be the most awkward watch ever on an airplane or the shortest watch <laughs> on an airplane. So who knows? Um, but it is fascinating to be able to watch a film in different formats and it be as meaningful in some of those different formats. I remember sitting in the theater and I got an early screening to Mad Max Fury Road and just watching it and just thinking to myself, this is special it's it's when it's when you see one of those movies and you say to yourself like in 20 years like this like we're going to be talking about this movie still and it's just fascinating to watch that because there are a number of films that you you know you watch and a number of films that are on my list here that you like on that first take um but you like it better on the second and the third and the fourth this one immediately from the original watch is like this is really good and if miller never makes another mad max film it's okay because this is pretty much a perfect movie for me. 
Uh, for my number five, I actually, speaking of films that you might want to watch a second, a third, or a fourth time, that is this film in spades. I'm talking about Abbas Kiarostami's 2011 film, Certified Copy. I th- This film has depths to it that continue to reveal themselves to me every time I watch it. It's a story that... Uh, begins with a talk about uh, art and copies of art and what makes an original version of an artwork more valuable or more authentic than a replica of it or, or or a copy of it. And from there, it goes off into with these two characters on a road trip and they kind of seem to be playing a game with each other where they imitate, take on the the appearance of a husband and wife on a trip together. They essentially decide to be become, to pretend to be husband and wife. And at least that's what we think they're doing. The great trick of this film over its running time is constantly teasing the audience with how much are they pretending? Are they pretending at all? Are they are they strangers? Do they know each other? Do they know each other really well? What, In what proportions are each of these things true? And when it arrives at what seems like an answer, that's really satisfying. But most satisfying is just journeying with these characters and really just going along for the ride with them as they kind of dip in and out of this charade that they're playing. And in doing so, they really hearken back to that initial question, well, what is authenticity? What is true vulnerability between two people who who know each other well, or maybe don't know each other well? That constant elusiveness is something that I really appreciate in this film. It's something that makes it eminently rewatchable. It's something that almost demands that you rewatch it to really make sure that you're picking up on all the little things that Karastami is doing here through his writing, through his actor's performances, and through the way that he uses ca- the camera to suggest shifts in the relationship dynamic that we see on screen. It's a really rewarding watch, and it's it's one that I was really excited when it came to the Criterion Collection so I could get it and have it forever and rewatch whenever I want. So Certified Copy is a true original, in my opinion, and uh, that's my and my number five. My new flat. Qu'est-ce qu'il te plaît? Je ne crois pas que je dois essayer de t'expliquer ou de te convaincre. Je me demande comment tu peux te convaincre toi-même. Une vraie connaisseuse d'art, n'est-ce pas? Je ne vois pas comme une œuvre d'art. C'est son sujet qui me plaît, Jane. Son sujet? C'est ma façon dont elle posait sa tête sur son épaule. Yeah, you know, when I first watched that movie, I. I was just kind of confused, and I've, I've learned to, to like it a lot more over the years. And I think it, it is due a rewatch, particularly because I've seen more of Kirstami's films, and uh, hopefully on the wavelength. I don't know if the, I don't know if you'd say the concept or mystery as this relationship sort of changes or morphs over the course of the film works exactly like it's supposed to. Uh, Sometimes it feels a little clinical to me, but 
there are some very profound moments, particularly uh, there is a, a, a scene where these characters kind of walk by this this church. Uh, they might actually go inside the church. And um, that just feels very spiritual to me. And so, yeah, it is it is due for a rewatch on my end. Yeah, those those church bells that we hear in in the film's final third that recur and seem to call forth certain aspects of their relationship, I think is is really special. And gosh, just even talking about it makes me want to go and watch it right now. It's I, I it's a great film. I love it a lot. Yeah, I need to I need to get the Criterion dvd from the library or something if not buy it to to watch it because i don't i think i rented it on like amazon or something last time so i need to check that out so kevin you know we're getting into the top four and each of these films are you know the emotional connection is going higher and higher and higher and my number four is a film that i've just i loved from the moment i saw it uh, it's Richard Linklater's 2014 Boyhood. We all kind of know the concept, right? Filmed over the course of 12 years, Linklater's magnum opus is is not just relevant because we see a boy grow over these 12 years, but it speaks to the nature of childhood itself. And I think part of it is especially meaningful to me because much of the geography, the actual geography in the film um, is geography from my childhood. Where they go to the Astros game or they, they go down to Herman Park in Houston. And many of the occurrences within this film are things that I experienced too, even though the child at the heart of this film, uh, played by Eller Coltrane, is a little bit younger than me. I was trying to figure out how to talk about this movie because I have talked about this film quite a bit. And I wanted to point listeners to an article by Marshall Schaefer. It went up on Film School Rejects, and it's titled, How a Ghost Story Completes a Texan Triptych on Time. Now, I really like a ghost story. It, it did not make my top 10, but Schaefer in this article talks about a ghost story, the tree of life, and boyhood and he goes on to say this he says all three films use texas not so much as a character as the popular phrasing goes for location specific films but as a spirit from which they can draw history mythology and weight the state's vast and multitudinous expanses offer a natural setting to ponder the tension between the supreme importance of a given moment and its relative insignificance on a cosmic scale. That's really kind of what the movie is about. There's this big emotional climax in the film where Patricia Arquette's character says, you know what I'm realizing? My life is just gonna go like that. The series of milestones. This is a story about the little moments in life. And so when we look at Mason, we don't usually see those, those big occurrences, right? We don't see his graduation ceremony. We see him after his graduation. We don't see him getting his license. We see him kind of driving around with friends. That really is what life is, right? 
it's made up of these small moments that feel insignificant but mean so much. This is a movie about the importance of every moment. Uh, what might I say to my children and or friends today that they remember for the rest of our lives? What are those small things that we do, that we talk about, uh, that we carry with us forever? This film also, as well as Schaefer writes about, emphasizes how small we are in relation to the universe, in relation to God, but just how valuable we are in spite of that smallness. God sees, right, each and every one of us, even during these insignificant moments. And so when I watch this movie, I feel seen. Um, it's an emotional journey, but there's something more there. And Link later, I, I think he, I think he hits it. There is power in these moments, and there is someone who watches us. And it's funny that we talk about watching because watching is a key theme for those three Texas films: a ghost story, the Tree of Life, Boyhood. The idea of of just watching or being seen or being noticed. Might there a God be watching us? Uh, is he looking out for us? And so that's my pick. Uh, number four from Richard Linklater, uh, Boyhood. You know what I'm realizing? My life is just going to go like that. This series of milestones. Getting married, having kids, getting divorced. The time that we thought you were dyslexic when I taught you how to ride a bike. Getting divorced again. Getting my master's degree. Finally getting the job I wanted. Sending Samantha off to college. That's uh, an impassioned defense for sure. I like Boyhood quite a bit. I don't think it it cracked my top 10 mainly because I feel like of all of the characters that we meet over the course of Mason's childhood, Mason seems to be the one almost that Linklater is the least interested in. You, You mentioned Patricia Arquette. She is just fantastic in this film. So good. And uh, Ethan Hawke as Mason's father, you know, it's funny that Hawke has now been in two uh, Linklater projects, Boyhood and the the Before trilogy, uh, where he plays a character, the, the same character over a long period of time. So we kind of, we've probably seen Ethan Hawke uh, age <laughs> yeah. it, it, before our eyes, maybe uh more we, we've paid closer attention to his aging process maybe more than any other professional actor in existence which is just funny to think about um so it, it's it's great to see that use of time in boyhood that makes it really special um and uh it's it's a worthy pick yeah and it's it's funny because mason is i, I wouldn't say he's passive but he isn't a charismatic individual. And I think that might hurt the quote-unquote entertainment factor of the film, but it, it it does feel real. And when you when you look at the settings and the houses and and just the places where these characters go, they feel real. And maybe it's just because here in Texas they look like the houses people live in, right? You watch you watch television sometimes or you watch films and it's like most people don't live in that type of house. Uh, these look like the spaces where people inhabit, and he looks like an average person, and he's doing the things that everybody does. And I think for me, that kind of makes it, you know, more special. 
Yeah, well, uh, I've got a, another story about a boy for my number four pick. I, I'm curious to know your thoughts about it. It is The Kid with the Bike, uh, the Darden Brothers 2012 film. Um, and this is the, the poor Darden Brothers. I really wanted to find space for more than one of their films in this show. I sadly couldn't make it, but it almost feels like the Darden's the overall quality of their work is so high that they come out with a new movie and it's of course a masterpiece and everyone's like oh cool yeah it's another Darden brother movie that is just perfect <laughs> not much more to say here and and you sort of move on which is yeah I mean maybe that's a good problem to have but still it, it's remarkable how watching the kid with the bike you you witness a film that is in some ways a perfect film. Like, I don't know if there's, if even if I were looking to nitpick this film, which I'm not, but even if I were setting out to find fault with it, I don't think I could. Everything is so well-placed. The editing is perfect. The performances are perfect. The uh, the music cue, there, there's no music in this film except for a couple of places where they have this, this music cue of strings that play over uh, various shots of this this little boy uh, sleeping or going about his day. And it's just the, the placement of those music cues is exactly perfect. And this is a film that is about essentially a boy trying to find his place in the world and, and feeling adrift because he has he has no one who lets him know that he is seen to go with what you were talking about with boyhood about wondering if there's a god out there who knows us and who sees us and who loves us the kid with the bike is all about that cyril is the um main character in this film and he's you know very troubled he's kind of like this thunder cloud of anger going throughout the the world of this film but he feels that way because He's essentially been abandoned by his parents, and he doesn't think that there's really anybody out there who cares about him until he meets uh, this hairdresser who sort of takes him in. And the wonder of this film, I guess, in the end, is that we watch her love essentially transform him from that thundercloud into somebody who, who knows whom he belongs to, knows who loves him and whom he loves, and how that transforms his life and in some ways not to give too much away uh brings him back to life i i I think it's it's a beautiful film and it's it's one of these films it's so modest in its scope that's easy to overlook just how perfect it is but i'm not going to let that happen here and i'm I'm (laughs) going to stick it up as high as i can get it number four on my list the kid with the bike T'as mal quelque part La jambe. Tu te saignes Non. T'es pas tombé sur la tête Non. Donne-moi ton nom et ton prénom. Non, madame, nous sommes un directeur de civil. Oui. Il s'est échappé de l'école. Non, sans raisonnable, tu viens. T'entends ce que je te dis Tu viens. Lâche la dame. Cyril, viens Tu me fais mal, me serre pas comme ça. Tu laisses la dame et tu viens avec nous. Je reste chez mon père Il habite plus ici, ton père. Si, il y a aussi mon vélo Tu peux rester comme moi, mais me serre pas si fort. Tu viens, Cyril. Non je peux lui ouvrir l'appartement, il verra. T'as entendu le concierge On va aller voir l'appartement de ton père, d'accord Yeah, okay, so 
one of the hardest parts of this list is making room for great filmmakers in the top 10. And surprisingly, Spielberg didn't make my top 10. Martin Scorsese, who made uh, Silence, who made The Irishman, who made The Wolf on Wall Street, three really important films didn't make my top 10. And then also, sadly, the Dardenne brothers didn't make my top 10. This film was on my list, and I decided to sit down and, and watch it again last night. And I watched it, and I love this movie, and I think it's great. It just, I didn't respond to it emotionally like I did during the first viewing. Something changed. Uh, and like I said, this is still a great film, and I, I believe it's in my, my top 20, uh, top 25. But yeah, it, it, something changed. But I, I will say this. This is one of those films that like many of the Dardenne pictures, allows us to just kind of follow along with these characters and just kind of watch them interact with the world. And because of that, we can understand or at least glimpse at their emotions. And I've said this in the past, I think the Dardenne brothers, I think their pictures are empathy machines. And I think that's, that's here too. And in addition, while their technical qualities do feel modest they are powerful when they need to be there's a scene in this film where the young boy is uh, in bed and someone comes in and says hey the director of this home wants to talk to you and at first it's hard to even see that the character is in bed it, it looks like there's just blankets and then he kind of moves and he just he just twists himself up in these blankets and he's kind of moving around and it makes me feel very claustrophobic. And at that moment, I feel, I, I can almost physically feel what that character feels. This claustrophobia, this, this feeling like your life has been restricted, this feeling like this, this boa constrictor is just squeezing everything out of you. And the Dardenne's, uh, visually make that happen and it sneaks up on you and you don't always you know you don't always realize it um, but it does happen and yeah so I, I really do like this picture and just kind of sad that the Dardens didn't make my list top 10 but you know they're here and they're close and for a movie to be in the top 20 of the decade you know it's still pretty big so um, they, they certainly sit there yeah, well, and, you know, with as many masterpieces as they have under their belts, I feel like they don't have anything to prove to them. They, <laughs> they know what they're about. So no, that's, that's I, I'm sure I'm sure you can be forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if, if they're listening to this, they won't, you know, they won't take it uh, to heart. Uh, so my number three is a uh, film, Kevin, that you talked about. It was your number 10. And that's David Fincher's uh, The Social Network. This is the Aaron Sorkin pen story of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook's rise to social dominance. You know, rather than feeling like this film has become dated, I think it's more relevant than ever. And I remember when it was about to release and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is funny. You know, there's a, there's a film about Facebook, um, but it is so incredibly powerful. In this version of the Facebook origin story, the social networking juggernaut lays its foundation in the human desire to be liked, accepted, and loved. And Fincher does a fantastic job of connecting those ideas to the creation of not social media itself, but 
the explosion of social media. As humans, we desire to be accepted and loved. We need more than to merely survive. And in our hyper-individualistic world, these desires usually play out in a form of uniqueness. So we want to be unique. And more often than not, our friendships are these elaborate competitions to be unique. And if you think about hyper-individualism and you think about these ideas, well, then you can reasonably conclude that social media is where we're headed. And when we watch this movie, we get those breadcrumbs. Why does Zuckerberg push out Eduardo in this film? Because there can only be one founder. He has to be unique. Is there a better way to describe Facebook or social media in general than this pushing out of other people in order to get attention for ourselves? Um, When this film was released, Kevin, I had a more optimistic view of social media. And now when I watch it, I think to myself, we, we were warned. David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin, they were warning us, hey, this is what it looks like. And now I'm beginning to see that. And, you know, every day just kind of lamenting social media, becoming more of a grouch about it, uh, you know, as I view it. It's, it's so, yeah, I, I think that uh, this film is, I don't want to say it's like, it's like the Citizen Kane of our time. I, I'm not going to say that, but, but there's this quality about Citizen Kane, about this, this rise to dominance in a particular way with news stories uh, with information and what that does to the people around him and, and then what that does to himself. So there's almost this quality, this Americana quality to social network that I would see in something like, a, you know, a Citizen Kane. Yeah, the Kane analogy is apt. You know, we, you talk about how, you know, Fincher and Sorkin, they tried to warn us. And, you know, when you first say that, you think, oh, they tried to warn us that Facebook was, you know, was bad or, you know, that it was birthed in adversity or, or something like that, which is maybe true. But I think the real warning of this film comes from that final shot of uh, Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg. He's sitting alone in a conference room. He sent a friend request to uh, the the girlfriend who, who spurned him, who started this whole thing off. And he's just sitting there hitting refresh, hitting refresh, hitting refresh, all by himself, all alone, mm. staring at the computer screen. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's what they tried to warn us about, that the potential of social media wasn't conflict. It was isolation and just this, this spiritual sickness that we see on Zuckerberg's face in that moment. And in that way, it is a lot like Citizen Kane where he kind of, he gains the whole world, but he kind of loses his soul and it's really sobering. Uh, and it's, it's one reason why I felt like, yeah, social network needs to be on my list as well. It's just, it does really feel of its time. It's essentially a 2010 version of, of Citizen Kane in its own way. Yeah. And, you know, at the end when he, he has his lawyer played by Rashida Jones and he, he wants to go hang out with her and she's like, nah, he, he realizes it's a funny moment, but he realizes like he almost can't even pay people to hang out with him. It's just, it is a strange isolation and that, that disembodiment 
to society is something that I also see in Blade Runner 2049. I think it's even hinted at better here. Uh, just when we when we get to that and just all of these emotions that are associated with this story, we're, we, we feel them in our world today with social media. And it's just kind of wondering, you know, this this film came out 10 years ago. What is it going to look like uh, in another 10 years? I, I don't know. Um, but maybe the social network is trying to tell us something today about the next 10 years. You know, that's, that's a possibility. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a vital message for sure. Uh, speaking of vital messages, my, my pick for number three, in, in a lot of ways, I feel like what I have at number three is maybe the most vital of any of the films on my list. Um, especially, you know, the, the, this is these films, I, I actually am cheating a little bit and I'm putting two films at number three and I'll become clear why in a second. But uh, these films were both on the, the previous best of the decade list. Um, and that was, you know, that was way back before uh, 2016, before where we are now. And uh, it seems almost as if these films are more urgent now than they were then. I'm thinking of Joshua Oppenheimer's diptych of documentaries, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, uh, uh, 2012 and 2014, respectively. These are films, essentially, that lead us to recognize evil for what it is, that um, put up evil men on screen, openly admitting to their evil, and challenge us to do two things. They challenge us to sit there and stay in the same room with these men. And it also challenges us to keep our our wits about us, keep our moral discernment about us, and recognize their evil uh, for its true horror. I think that's um, a muscle that seems like it maybe has atrophied a little bit in... uh, Maybe the popular consciousness? I don't know. I, I don't want to be too much of a uh, Jeremiah here or, or get into doomsday, but I do feel <laughs> like there's something essential in these films being very clear-eyed, morally speaking, about their subjects. Um, to, to recap for anyone who hasn't seen them, these are two documentaries about Indonesia, which back in the 1970s... Um, conducted a a purge of suspected communists and ethnic Chinese um, and essentially got away with it. They they so many people were were rounded up and executed, were murdered by their neighbors. And the Indonesia of today um, still has some grappling to do with the legacy from that. A lot of the perpetrators of this of this violence of of this oppression are well-loved popular political figures today they're part of the political mainstream and naturally of course they have a stake in not letting the sins of the past come to light and it's easy for us to to watch and go like oh you know that's indonesia that's the other side of the world that's not us We're, we're better than that but then you think about well the 70s were about 50 years ago. What kinds of documentaries will be made about us in 50 years? And it's a really sobering thought. And that kind of self-reflection is something that Oppenheimer very intentionally draws forth from the audience in making these films, especially with the act of killing where he invites the, the subject 
of that film, a, a murderer named Anwar Congo, to essentially stage reenactments of the killings that he undertook with his own hands. And in doing that, he portrays Congo's vanity, but he also portrays how easy it is for the, the image on screen to, to influence us towards good or towards evil, and how merely the act of putting something on screen really does make a difference in calling something out for what it is. So if, if there were any films that I would say are mandatory viewing for, for everybody, I would say The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence would be it. Both fantastic films, and The Look of Silence made my top 10 the year that it came out. And I don't know what it was about that movie over the act of killing. I think they're both phenomenal, but especially with, with The Look of Silence, I just, uh, I don't know. I just, I felt something really powerful with that movie. And it's, it's, it, it's sobering in so many different ways. And Oppenheimer... He lets the characters kind of hang themselves. He lets the characters just kind of talk. And obviously there's this editorial hand across the material, but it doesn't feel as apparent as you would expect it to feel. And yet, I think it's far more effective and um, damning in that respect towards these characters and, you know, what they do and... Yeah, I was thinking that these would be on yours, Kevin, and uh, yeah, I'm glad to see him because I, I almost feel like we've kind of – the films came out a couple years ago, and I, I, I don't hear people talking about them as much, and I'd, I'd like to you know hear that conversation happen a bit more because they are both very special. I, I, I wrote uh, a review of The Look of Silence when it came out for the Christ and Pop Culture website. And there's, there's a quote from the film that I, that I used in that piece that I, I still think about over all, all the time, uh, where one of the killers talks about how, you know, the part they did to fight communism, the global fight against communism, uh, how their slaughters were justified. And he says, we should be rewarded with a trip to America. And man, if that <laughs> just isn't a, a, a stake to the heart, I don't, I don't know what it wow. is. So I don't know. It, it, essential viewing for sure. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. Uh, so I do have to say this, Kevin. You kind of cheated, and you had two films at your number, your number uh, three. I have a Coen Brothers movie at my number two, but three Coen Brothers films are in my top 25. So can I just put all three of them at number two? Does that does that kind of work for the rules? Oh, <laughs> man. It's a slippery slope. Now I, I've gone and done it. 
Uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So hit, hit us with what you originally had at your number two. No, so I'll just, I'll have this one. So my favorite Coen Brothers film uh, from their entire filmography, not just this decade, is Inside Lewin Davis. Listeners to our show know that I very much do cherish this 2013 film. It follows a struggling musician played by Oscar Isaac, who is... I mean, the best way to describe it is he's struggling. He's a struggling musician who is just struggling. And I came across a piece on the film by Corey Atad. It was posted at the now sadly defunct movie Mezzanine. And, and he says this. He says, if the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan, have any overriding concern, it's the matter of existing. More specifically, existing in an uncaring and absurd world and the cosmic joke inerrant. This singular focus has been a matter of debate, leaving many critics in awe and some aghast at the cruelty of the Coens' vision. They have been cruel unquestionably. Characters in so many of their films are put through the ringer, with no real consideration of what they deserve. Of course, Deserving is the pure view of God, and the Coens leave God absent, at least in intention. The ebbs and flows of any particular moment exhibit no reason except unreason. Such is their dealing in unkind adversity and its unexpectedness. Simply existing becomes a trial worth watching. Then he goes on to say, the bleak cold silence of existing, the tiring weight of it all, and yet it's tempered by a caring and unexpected kindness that runs through to its core. Inside Lewin Davis is a miracle of sorts, a deeply bittersweet film whose heart and humanity give warm respite in the cold. You know, this is the story, it's it's the opposite, Kevin of a rags-to-riches, rags-to-fame story. The character, the protagonist here, even makes this cross-country journey to promote his music, and, right, obviously, it, it just doesn't work out. Now, Corey mentions in this piece the absence of God in the Coens' work, and he says, at least in intention. And I think this film, like the rest of their, their filmography, is extremely religious. How do we cope in a dark world where God seems absent? Is he truly absent, or do we just have trouble observing his presence? In the end, I think most of us can all relate to that line in the film's trademark song fairly well. It goes like this. If I had wings like Noah's dove, I'd fly up the river to the one I love. This is an important film, I think, for me, Kevin, and it's a powerful and like Corey says, cold film, but unexpectedly warm. And we can't help but root for Lewin Davis, hoping some way he breaks out of this cycle. And I think that hope that he does break out um, is born of something otherworldly. So inside Lewin Davis, uh, my number two pick. I'm getting my silver tone. You get to play it if and only if you sing. Right, yeah, okay. I can tell this is one of those things where I keep saying no and you think I'm just asking you to beg more. Yeah, that's right. Right, well, look, I'm not a trained poodle. I thought singing was a joyous expression of the soul. Yeah, 
Yeah. All right. Um, this is, this one's early. Joe should like it. If I had wings and a dove, I'd fly up the river to the one that What? What is that? What are you doing? Well, it's Mike's part. Don't do that. It's Mike's part. I know what it is. Don't do that. I feel like there are two kinds of people in this world, Wade. There are the people who love Inside Lewin Davis and have the eloquent defenses of it to match, talking about all those themes that you mentioned, <laughs> mentioning the, the, the wonderful lyrics of Fare Thee Well. And then there are the people like me who really just like Adam Driver's vocals <laughs> in the Dear Mr. Kennedy song. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny because he, he does really go to outer space uh, when he becomes Kylo Ren. So coincidence? I don't know. How did he know? I don't know. How did he know? <laughs> That's that's really I, I I like Inside Lewin Davis so obviously not as much as you do but I mean yeah I I don't have much else to add other than that I am all in for Adam Driver singing backup on that song <laughs> well and here's something else too this is uh, another film that stars Justin Timberlake so Justin Timberlake is in my number three and my number two also a coincidence I I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, well, it remains to be seen whether he'll complete the trifecta and be in the number one <laughs> film as well. Um, but for now, uh, my, going on to my number two is a film that probably needs no introduction among our audience. It is, of course, Terrence Malick's 2011 film, The Tree of Life. And Wade, you and I have talked about this so much on the podcast. I feel like we almost need to do the film spotting thing and introduce a penalty box where we just call a moratorium on talking about the tree of life just because we talk about it all the time. We even did a devoted an entire segment of the show when Criterion came out with the extended cut of the tree of life. We watched that and, and reviewed it and talked about it. So we've talked about the tree of life a lot on the podcast. So I don't know that I necessarily need to belabor any of the many things that we've already said that other really thoughtful Christian critics have already pointed out. But I think that one reason why this film has endured so as much as it has, I mean, it's it's a classic among Christian and non-Christian viewers, but Christian viewers especially hold it so dear, I think, because Malik's vision is simultaneously... Uh, his, his, it's possessed of a very rich religious and spiritual imagination and also is extremely aesthetically disciplined and evocative in a way that it, we, we don't necessarily never get with religious films, but few of them have the power of this film. I think back to uh, a critic, uh, Tim Brayton, who used to have a blog called Antagony and Ecstasy. I think he, he may write elsewhere now. The blog is now defunct. But he gave an absolutely ecstatic review 
to the tree of life. He said that he didn't know whether to, sorry, he wrote that he didn't know whether to dance or to cry with the unutterable glory of it, which is a really great line. But I really like his review, especially because uh, Brayton is an avowed atheist. He doesn't have the same strong emotional connection to Malik's uh, religious themes that maybe a Christian viewer does, but Malik's film still speaks to him and calls across that ocean of unbelief anyway. And I think that that's pretty special. And uh, if... If it did nothing else, that would be worthwhile, but it does so much more, so I'm sticking all the way up at number two on my list. When did you first touch my heart? Yeah, I mean, we have talked about this this movie so so much, and I I think too as I was preparing for this list, I came across Roger Ebert's really great and succinct original review for the film, and I think one of the reasons why it's just kind of this episode too is is sad, and or even just thinking about these films is sad, is because. In the 2010s, for at least part of it, we did have Roger Ebert, and we had some of his great reviews, and now we're going into this new world, it feels like, without him. And and that seems strange, but he has a fantastic review of the film, and he's someone who has... Uh, it hasn't said he was an atheist, of course not, but, but he has had his own struggles uh, with faith, and it's just fascinating to see so many different types of people relate to this movie uh, in that sense. And you kind of stole some of my steam, Kevin, because uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Mine's the Tree of Life. My number one pick is the Tree of Life. I won't keep going on and on. You mentioned we did talk about this film, the extended edition, in episode 171, so our listeners can hear our thoughts there. They can also go back and listen to me talk about the film when I did our best of the decade so far in 2015. I, I think what's so enlightening about this film is to see how it's stuck with me through various stages in life, right? From being a newlywed, to being a parent, to losing a job, to experiencing loss, to seeing a parent die, to to see my six-year-old begin to grow up and experience 
some of the same, I guess you could say, struggles that all kids experience and what we see in this film. And through all of that, this is one of those movies that still does speak to me. And I think when you boil it down, it does this fantastic job of balancing pain, tragedy, but also hope. You know, if you think about the Christian story and the problem of evil, uh, a simplistic way to talk about that is to say, hey, you know, one day things are going to be fine. We have this hope of resurrection. Um, a more nuanced and biblical approach is, hey, this, you know, there is tragedy in this world. Um, God's presence is here with us, but we also do have that promise. And I think this film just, it balances that. It, it doesn't minimize what it's like to grow up, what it's like to experience loss, but it also doesn't minimize hope. And when you get to the end, you know, these, this big transcendent moment, you really do, you do feel that. Um, and I think the reason that you feel that so much is because you've walked through some of these, these difficult points in um, this character's life. Jessica Chastain, I mean, she's amazing, of course. I mean, talked about Brad Pitt. You know, Brad Pitt's crazy good here. Um, and his performance is one of those that grows on me every single time. I, I think it's sneaky in that way, in the way that he plays this father. So, yeah, um, your number two is my number one, Tree of Life. Yeah, I mean, it's it's at the top of our list for a reason. It, it really is just that good. And all the times that I've I've rewatched it, you know, trying to just sort of dig into it deeper has just uh, solidified its that the fact that it, it belongs there. So glad to see it at your number one. My number one is is another film that uh, is is deeply meaningful to me, um, but is also I just think is is such a a wonderful example of of craft and and form working with narrative to to make something really special and also at least in my opinion is maybe the defining film of the 2010s so we talked about the social network putting its finger on some things that have to do with the the last decade we we talked about um blade runner 2049 having to do with technology and and our relationship to beings that we may have created ourselves i really like spike jones's 2013 film her uh and and i this is another film that i really wanted to make sure i watched before we recorded because i wanted to see if it really was the masterpiece i remembered it being it absolutely is um and i wrote a little bit about it on on letterbox if you'll indulge me i'm going to kind of read a little bit from that piece uh, I write, Theodore Twombly, the main character of her, played by Joaquin Phoenix, isn't a pathetic caricature meant to illustrate how humanity is hypnotized by its technology, nor is he merely an intelligent primate horrifyingly mangled in the gears of an unfeeling system, like in other dystopias. He's just a guy for whom courageous feeling is just a memory. His uncanny but genuine romance with a disembodied intelligence is part of the necessary road back to reclaiming a nascent part of himself. Dystopian science fiction often presents a carnival mirror reflection of reality to us. Only in the best dystopian fiction, though, do we behold that distorted image and remember the true shape from which it originates. And I think that's really what Jones does here with her, is that he... he takes this premise that really feels almost like something out of Black Mirror, right? You know, a guy falls in love with his computer and it doesn't work out the way he necessarily expected. 
but he shoots it all in this this really warm pastel colored uh aesthetic working with Hoyta van Hoytema his his uh cinematographer this is I think the the first film that really put Hoyt van Hoytema on my radar as just an absolutely superb cinematographer because he takes what seems like kind of a premise that is very much about the evils of technology and he turns it into a tender love story that's really about this man who is at the film center really trying to work out why he is the way he is. Why does he feel the need to uh, have convenience as part of his relationships? Why is his relationship with Samantha, the AI, informed by him both wanting control but also not wanting to fully be vulnerable? And Jones explores this with just such sensitivity that doesn't discount the the more off-putting aspects of our relationship to technology, but also really recognizes that regardless of what we might think of Theodore's feelings, they are real. Like feelings don't stop being real just because they're odd or because we can't understand them as outside observers. And that's something that Jones's film really understands. And I think it's just... It's utterly beautiful. It really gets me in the emotions every single time. And it really speaks to kind of a common condition that we all find ourselves in the 2010s where we kind of find ourselves maybe drifting a little bit apart from from our connection with one another. There's a, a mock commercial that shows up uh, towards the beginning of this film that's selling the OS that becomes uh, Samantha to... Uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character. And it's just this this shot of all these people. They're kind of in this wasteland. It's almost like a, an inverse of that great shot at the end of the Tree of Life where we see all these people kind of walking in this estuary. But these people in, the, in hers commercial are kind of, they're all running in different directions. They're all carrying devices and they look utterly lost and panicked. And that seems like a really great diagnosis in some ways of our current cultural moment and that Jones is able to evoke that while also telling such a a hopeful story about our capacity to connect with each other even in such a technology-addled society. I, I don't know. I think that's really special and that's why this continues to be my favorite movie of the decade. What about you, Theodore? What do you love most about Samantha? Oh, God. <laughs> She's so many things. I guess that's what I love most about her. You know, she isn't just one thing. She's so much larger than that. Oh, thanks, Theodore. See, Samantha, he is so much more evolved than I am. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's interesting? I used to be so worried about not having a body, but now I I truly love it. I'm growing in a way that I couldn't if I had a physical form. I mean, I'm not limited. I can be anywhere and everywhere simultaneously. I'm not tethered to time and space in a way that I would be if I was stuck in a body that's inevitably going to die. Yikes. No. <laughs> no, no. I didn't mean it like that. I just meant that it was a different experience. No, 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 Samantha, we know exactly what you mean. We're all dumb humans. No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I mean, there, there's something to 
Jones's vision of the future in this film, where it's dystopian, but but not quite the dystopian that we would um, we would originally picture if we're thinking of the word dystopian and how that plays out. I, I, I like this film. I don't necessarily love this movie, but there really is so much to say about these themes that we kind of keep going back to of technology and our relation to technology. And perhaps that's how people will look back and define the 2010s uh, when, they, when they think about movies, is they'll think about these films that talk about our role within this technological space and the isolation. I mean, we're per polls, society is feeling um, lonelier than ever. Uh, there's this loneliness epidemic. And these films hinted that and they say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it is the technology that we have. And so I think her is a great example of, of how that's kind of working out in, in cinema. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that it really, this film does such a great job of not just diagnosing the problem, like saying, you know, oh, you know, oh, we're, we're feeling lonely. We're addicted to our smartphones. That's really easy to do. I think this film does the much harder job of diagnosing it, but also pointing us in the right direction, reminding us that the reason that we're a little bit put off by the sight of Theodore Twombly having a romance with somebody who doesn't have a body and who is an artificial mind created by other humans, the reason we're put off by that is that we weren't made for relationships like that. We were made for embodiment, for connection with one one, one another physically. And I, I think the fact that he, he takes that extra step to point us in the right direction or to at least encourage us to face in that right direction makes all the difference. Listeners, that is, that's it, Kevin. We did it. It is a lot of fun to talk about. Um, as we mentioned, painful to put together. Um, so many, so many movies. And even now, like, as I'm hearing you talk about films or I'm thinking about other films, I'm like, oh, you know, this could have been on, on my list and, and just was so close. As we mentioned in the middle segment, listeners, our Patreon only episode, Patreon members episode, it will be a discussion of picks 11 through 20, which is, yeah, I mean, just kind of wild to even think about doing that. Uh, so, if you are a Patreon supporter, hop on over there. In the next couple of weeks, we'll have that for you to check out. Uh, we did it, Kevin. Here's to here's to another five years of seeing and believing, and then also, you know, another new decade of movies. Yeah, an- another new decade. Hopefully, it has as many riches in it as this past decade had. Yeah, you know, this past decade had so many great films. The Tree of Life is top two or three all time for me. And so it's like, well, maybe this next decade will produce, you know, something else like that as well as, you know, what we have here. And we're also going to meet new filmmakers and we're probably going to see some other filmmakers go. And um, yeah, it's just, just fascinating. Listeners, make sure to tweet us your thoughts about the episode as well as your thoughts on some favorite films from the decade. Go to Twitter and type in at Pod at pod. Send us a note. You can also email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week, even when we have two-hour episodes, helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. 
My co-host is Kevin McLenathan, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.